put on your speed hats because I want to get through two lessons. I know some of you, your children are getting out at noon or something like that, I heard, and you might have to leave early. I almost thought of reversing the lessons and having part two in, in, in first because I really like the second lesson so much better. It's going to be about Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Um, but I couldn't do that because everything would be out of sequence. So uh, I hate it if you have to leave early because you're going to miss the best part. But that's how it is. But I will try to speak very quickly and get through a lot and try to see if I can remember how to do my PowerPoint slides. And, you know, when you only teach every so often, it becomes more and more difficult. I did want to uh, welcome some of you, Shirley Sam, and um, I can't think of your name. Who? Joyce. Yes, Camper. They were among the original ladies back in 1987 who came to the Bible study when I started it in Sanford. And uh, I had 12 ladies show up, and there are two of them right there. Isn't that? that yeah. Raise your hand, Shirley, Joyce. Isn't that fantastic? I was so blessed to see them. Thank you for uh, all of you from Sanford who drove down here. How many are from our Sanford study? Quite a few. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you for making that trip. We even have one lady who drove all the way from Virginia. Barbara, where, where's Barbara? Way back there in the corner. Well, that's a long trip to make just to hear this, but I'm <laughs> glad you did it. All right, we are recording these lessons, so if you do have to leave early and you will miss the second lesson, it will be on the podcast, thanks to Natalie. Where is Natalie? She's probably, oh, she's taking pictures. Huh, that's good. Take a picture of all these ladies. Come up here and take a picture. Um, but she will be putting it on the podcast very soon. And I see my beautiful daughter-in-law just walked in, so I want you all to meet. This is my daughter-in-law, Crystal, who married my son, Chris. Isn't that cute? Chris and Crystal. They both are spelled K-R-I-S. Raise your hand, Crystal. She's a beautiful redhead. This is her first time ever to our Bible study. First time ever. So please get her a chair. <laughs> And I have my little uh, three-year-old grandson and one-year-old granddaughter from them in the nursery, so pray they behave so she doesn't have to leave. Um, and she's from California. Moved to North Carolina, so I'm very excited about that. All right, you know what? I'm going to open with another prayer. The pastor's prayer was beautiful. I thank him for that. But let's open with another prayer, and then we'll get into our study. If you want to turn to a passage in your Bible, let's just go to John 20. But I will be all over the place. But that might be a good place to park. All right, would you bow with me again? Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together here this morning to worship you through your holy word regarding your beloved son who claimed and then proved that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. Thank you for his promise that whosoever believes in him, though he or she might perish, yet shall we live again. This life, fortunately, is not all there is. There is something far, far better awaiting all who put their faith in the completed redemptive work of your son, and are therefore no longer under the condemnation for their sin because you see us clothed in the righteousness of your son. 
Now help us, Lord, to put away the things of this world, to focus our minds and our hearts on the things that are above. May your spirit be unhindered this morning so he can freely use the truths from your word to do his convicting and convincing work in all of our hearts. I know that everyone here has concerns. Some may have doubts. Some may be suffering from depression, others with anxiety. And probably many of us are just overwhelmed with the, the chaos and the anti-godliness of this world. So, Father, I ask that you would use these lessons to remind us of the bottom line truth that you are sovereign. And everything that is happening is right on schedule with your ultimate plan to fully redeem this world back to yourself. We know that as it was true resurrection morning, it is always the darkest right before the dawn. And we know that joy cometh in the morning. So through our look today at the events and the circumstances surrounding Christ's resurrection, may you restore to us the vital truths of our faith, restore to us the joy of our salvation. And now we ask that you would be honored and glorified by both the words and the meditations of your people as we discuss the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, in whose blessed name we make these requests. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Come on in. Come on in. Still trickling in. That's great. The Resurrection Reality, Part 1. Part 1. Obviously, to resurrect from the dead, Jesus, first of all, had to die, right? In fact, the eternal Son of God came to earth for that very purpose. He came to earth to give his life and shed his human blood for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. In truth, no one took his life, did they? No one took his life. He willingly laid it down for us. And so, after triumphantly shouting, Te Telestai, which is Greek for it is finished, not I am finished, it is finished, my redemptive work is finished, he royally bowed his head and dismissed his own spirit. Did he give up his own life? Yes, he did. He dismissed his spirit as a king dismisses a servant. The time was precisely 3 p.m. on Nisan 14, Passover day, exactly the time when the Jewish priests began to slay the Passover lambs in the temple, which all pictured him. Every Passover lamb since the first ones, back in Exodus chapter 12, pictured who? The coming true, once for all, Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, at the same moment that he dismissed his spirit, the earth quaked. Select graves were opened of believers. And the massive temple veil rent from top to bottom. The way all of that was pictured, well, I think the earthquake was God's amen 
to it is finished, don't you? Amen. <laughs> but the way was now open into God's holy presence for all who place their faith in Christ. Old Testament, looking ahead to Christ. New Testament, looking back. The way was open for all. The flow of blood and water from his pierced side by a Roman spear serves as one of many reliable evidences of his literal death. There are crazy conspiracy, th you know, there's always been conspiracy theories, right? <laughs> well, there are a whole lot of uh, theories about the resurrection. And one of them is called the swoon theory, you know, that he didn't really die and he, you know, when he was put in the cool tomb, he, he resuscitated and came up, and which is insane because you can't uh, uncover, you know, they were wrapped. I'll, we'll talk later about how they were wrapped and couldn't breathe and after being beaten and everything. There's no way he was resuscitated in that tomb and then moved a 2,000 ton from the inside without a handle stone away so he'd get out, you know, crazy. But... Um, he did die. Let me read to you about why the blood and water came out of his, this is a medical thing, um, and I may not pronounce all the medical terms correctly, but I, I wrote this down. Many Bible expositors indicate that the flow of blood and water from the Lord's pure side indicates he died of a ruptured heart. What's that? A broken heart. The Greek word used for side in John 19.34 is plura which indicates the spear pierced the rib cage in the thorax area, not the abdominal area, because some will say it was urine coming out with the blood and water. No, no, no. According to medical experts, the water was probably serous, pleural, and pericardial fluid. The blood may have originated from either the right atrium or the right ventricle of the heart. A ruptured heart would cause a large effusion of blood into the pericardium, which is called a hemopericardium. Do you all get that? The theory that Christ died of a ruptured heart previous to the spear thrust. Remember, he was dead. That's why they didn't break his legs. He was already dead. And the Roman soldiers were experts at knowing when somebody was dead. So he died of a ruptured heart before that spear went into his uh, side. It, th that theory has uh, the following points in its favor. Number one, it would be a literal fulfillment of Psalm 69.20, which says, reproach has broken my heart. Jesus gave up his own life, but if you want to talk in medical terms, he died of a broken heart. Medically, number two, it would explain the issuance of blood and water. And number three, it would prove the tremendous mental, physical, and spiritual agony that he endured for us on the cross. Now, there is also a spiritual significance in the flow of the blood and water mixture. The two liquids symbolize the benefits that we receive in Christ. Number one, salvation, represented by the blood. Number two, sanctification, as we become more and more sanctified, more and more set apart, more like Christ. That's symbolized by the water. The water represents the word, doesn't it? We're washed by the word. The blood pictures his work, and the water pictures his word. And the two, blood and water, justification and sanctification, or you could say salvation and sanctification, must always go together. Well, when the Roman soldiers finished their horrendous task of crucifying three men, 
one of whom was totally innocent, the Lord's friends then took over in making proper provision for his body. Do you know from that point on, no unbeliever ever touched the body of the Lord Jesus? Unlike Christ's original, oh, that's something I was going to talk about and decided not to, so you skip that. Um, unlike his original disciples, the apostles, uh, who had openly identified with him for three years, but then what did they do? They fled in fear when he was arrested and were nowhere to be seen during his entire ordeal on the cross, except for one, young John. He was there with four women, but the rest fled. They, just as he said, when the shepherd was smitten, what would the sheep do? Scatter. They scattered. But unlike them, this is ironic, two formerly secret disciples emerged at the time of his death to boldly identify with him. You know, it took more courage to identify with Jesus at the time of his death than to identify with him during his life when he was very popular. So these men were bold to do this. Do you know that both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were members of the Sanhedrin Council? I have scripture to back that up. That's amazing. These were very prominent men. They stepped out of the secrecy of their discipleship to, uh, or Joseph did first, to go before Pontius Pilate to request permission to remove Jesus' body from the cross and bury him. God's sovereignty was, you know, on display. It was on display throughout the whole cross, the passion on the cross. But it was on display even after he died. And here is another example of hundreds of ways to make sure that messianic prophecy was fulfilled even after the Lord died. You know, not having a bone broken, that was... <laughs> After he died, that was fulfilling messianic prophecy. Well, here's another one, because Joseph, we're told, was a very rich man. And he had purchased a new tomb, probably for himself or maybe not. Maybe because he was on the Sanhedrin in anticipation of knowing that they were going to kill Jesus. But he had recently hewn out of rock a beautiful garden tomb. Very um, expensive cemetery. <laughs> it was conveniently also located near Golgotha or Calvary, where the Lord was crucified. I do not think that Joseph of Arimathea was aware that in doing this, he was fulfilling Isaiah 53.9, which predicted that the true Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. If Joseph had not done this, do you know what would have happened to Jesus' body? And we would never know, have proof for the resurrection. His body would have been discarded in a place of great indignity called the Valley of Corpses or Gehenna. Gehenna. It was the Roman custom to toss the bodies of crucifixion victims and dead beggars into this awful place outside the city walls. It was like the unclean garbage pit of Jerusalem. 
So if Jesus' body was dumped there, he would disqualify, even after everything he did. Do you get this? I mean, he fulfilled every 333 prophecies about his first coming. But if he was thrown in the valley of corpses, he would disqualify to be the Savior, the Messiah, because he would not have fulfilled that one prophecy of Isaiah 53, 9. He wouldn't have been buried in a rich man's tomb. You get it? And then also, we would not have the empty grave or the empty grave clothes to prove his resurrection, would we? They would have just thrown his body. They wouldn't have wrapped him in grave clothes. Nobody would know which body was which. Do you see how important this was? Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this. There's going to be a lot of things I'm going to tell you that might be brand new for you. Some of them are really exciting. But um, if we compare the beginning and the end of Christ's pre-resurrection life, we realize that God appointed one Joseph to serve as guardian over Jesus' body while he was in a virgin womb and another Joseph to serve as guardian over his body in a virgin tomb. It even rhymes. Isn't that neat? The Holy Spirit also made sure to tell us through the human authors that each of these two Josephs were just men. It tells us Joseph, the father, stepfather, was a just man in Matthew 1, 19. It tells us Joseph of Arimathea was a just man in Luke 23, 50. And that the Holy Spirit is doing that on purpose so we connect the two, the two just Josephs. That's hard to say. Isn't it fascinating to realize that the first man to ever touch the body of Jesus, perhaps even pulling him from the virgin womb, and the last man to touch the body of Jesus, putting him into a virgin tomb, were both just men named Joseph. Now, you've got to share that with your family, don't you? Well, if you like that comparison, I've got another one for you. <laughs> the first woman to see the incarnate Jesus was named Mary, and the last two women to ever see the earthly body of Jesus, you know, pre-resurrection, uh, pre were also both named Mary. We learn that after the crowds left the crucifixion site, Mary Magdalene and Mary, not the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of James, the less. You see, there was an apostle named James the Greater and James the Less. Wouldn't you? That'd be sad to be James the Less. But I think he got that nickname either because he was smaller or less important. I don't know, but, they call but he too was an apostle. She was the mother of James the Less and Joseph or Joseph. She was, there's so many Marys in the New Testament, it really gets you confused. But this Mary, the mother of those two men, was the wife of Cleopas, who also had another name, Alpheus. And he, Cleopas or Alpheus, was the brother of Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus. So she, this Mary, 
is actually Mary, the Mary, mother of Jesus' sister-in-law. So she's Jesus' aunt. You get it? Did you follow all that? <laughs> anyway, so Mary Magdalene and um, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, they remained at the cross to see what was going to happen to the Lord's body. And when, to their utter amazement, two prominent Jews, and they say Nicodemus was one of, was the third richest man in Jerusalem. Nicodemus was a rich guy, just like Joseph. And they were both on the Sanhedrin council. So they knew who these guys were, and they're just shocked when they come forward to reverently remove Jesus' body from the cross. And so the two Marys follow the men to the nearby garden tomb. There's another conspiracy theory that says, oh, they went to the wrong tomb. No, they followed. They knew where he was buried. They got the right tomb. And by the way, why would they put a Roman guard around the wrong tomb? You know, the tomb was right. They knew which tomb it was. So they follow the men to the garden tomb. Um, so even though Luke tells us about another group of women, Galilean women, you know, there were women who ministered to the Lord and his disciples throughout his ministry. They traveled with him. They probably washed their clothes. They cooked their meals. And some of them were wealthy women who also helped finance their ministry. Um, but there are two groups that go out to the tomb, Resurrection Sunday morning. So it gets confusing. But there was, so there was another group who also followed this small funeral procession out to the tomb. But that group of women did not remain there. They saw where... Joseph and Nicodemus took him, but then they left to go back to prepare, you know, spices for burial. So, I'm telling you the truth. The last two women to ever see Jesus' body were both Marys. Now, all the women, knowing the tomb location, made plans together that they would return after the Sabbath days and uh, further prepare Jesus' body with additional spices and ointments. Now, those additional spices and ointments, aloe and myrrh and whatever else they might have brought, were totally unnecessary. But these were women, right? They were women, and what do women like to do? They like to do something. Not just going to sit around and do nothing. So they had to go home and, you know, work, keep their minds off of everything to show their respect for Jesus, even in his death. They were not necessary. What they made, the spices and everything, was totally not necessary because we are told that Nicodemus brought a 100-pound mixture. Now, there's a little difference. Some Bibles say 75 pounds, some say 100. That's not a contradiction uh, some use Roman measurements, and a Roman pound is a little bit less than an American pound, so don't let that distract you. But let's just go with the King James. It says a 100-pound mixture of myrrh and aloes. Do you know what that is valued at in today's economy? That would be 150000 to $200,000 worth of spices. Yes, he was a rich man. That was the amount fit for a king. Well, he was. He is king of kings, right? Normally, they would use two to five pounds for, like, probably Lazarus, you know, when they wrapped Lazarus. But a hundred pounds. Well, together, the two men wash, would wash the Lord's body, 
and then they would bind it in strips that were torn from fine, expensive linen cloth. You know, it was the best there was that was provided by Joseph of Arimathea. They would, you know, take that linen and rip it in, in strips, which disproves the Shroud of Turin. It wasn't one piece. It was strips, and they would... Um, the, the strips were layered with the costly spices. And this was not for the purpose of embalming, like the Egyptian did, Egyptians did with their mummies. It was purely to cover the, uh, the smell, the odor of decay. And, um, of course, it wouldn't be necessary with Jesus, would it? His body would not see corruption because he was sinless. And then the, what, what they would do is they'd wrap every finger and they'd wrap the hands in the body, and then they'd put the arms next to the body, and then they'd wrap the whole body, and then they would take um, more strips and wrap the head turban style. Like, can you picture a turban? All right, so we're going to talk more about the empty grave clothes in a little bit, but that's what they did. Well, a few nights earlier, God had made certain that his son, while he was yet living, was anointed for burial with very expensive perfume. What was it called? Spikenard perfume. And the amount lavished on him was also an amount fit for a king. It upset Judas that it was such waste, right? But it wasn't. That honorable task was performed by the loving hands of yet another Mary. Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, and she lavished her luxurious, expensive spikenard perfume on her beloved Savior. So think about this. You have Mary of Bethany, you have very rich Joseph of Arimathea, and very rich Nicodemus, all lavishing their wealth on Jesus. Compare that with other wise and wealthy believers in Jesus called the Magi or the wise men who also lavished expensive gifts on Jesus early in his life. So you see again, beginning and end, God was making sure his son was honored by his people, honored as a king. It's also significant that the new sepulcher that Joseph uh, of Arimathea provided had purchased for either his own burial or perhaps knowing in anticipation of the Lord's death was located in a garden. It's called a garden tomb. Why is that significant? Well, because it was in another garden that the first Adam, Jesus is called in the Bible what? The last Adam or the second Adam, the first Adam sowed the seed of sin that brought forth the horrible fruit of death, right? So it's appropriate that it was in another garden that the second Adam was buried. He is, from Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, defeating sin and death. He is the seed of life, right? Unless the seed goes into the ground, can't bring forth fruit. He's the seed of life who was sown into the ground of a peaceful garden tomb from whence he brought forth the happy fruit, happy, happy, happy fruit of eternal life. Well, while Christ's body lay in the tomb, 
the Jewish Sanhedrin Council, 70 men plus the high priests. Actually, at that time, there was illegally two co-reigning high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. They, they met together. It was a Sabbath, and they weren't supposed to do it, but they illegally met. They had an emergency session because they felt it was absolutely mandatory to further enlist the help of Pontius Pilate. You know, they could wrap that guy around their finger, couldn't they? To protect Jesus' tomb uh, with a Roman guard and a Roman seal. And this was definitely not to honor Jesus, was it? What was it for? It was to try to prevent his disciples from stealing his body and then claiming that he had resurrected. So they have this emergency session. Now the Roman guard, this may surprise you because you cannot trust Bible pictures. I tell you this all the time. You cannot go base your theology on Bible pictures, of storybooks, you know, for children and stuff. Because they'll usually have how many soldiers standing outside the, the tomb? Usually two, maybe one. Some say there was up to 50 if you count the temple guard. Because Pilate said, do whatever you have to. So they probably had temple guard as well as Roman soldiers. But we know that the Roman soldiers would have consisted of 12, a 12 to a 16-man unit. And, um, and, and they would take turns during the night. For, for um, it's called a quaternia, quaternium, <laughs> four soldiers on duty at a time, and there were four night watches, four watches during the night, so they would take turns on duty. But they were governed by, I read about this, I, I researched, I read how strict the rules were for these guys. They were not even allowed to sit or lean against anything while they were on duty. And if a soldier fell asleep on duty, he was not only severely beaten, but he was then burned to death. You think that's bad? He was not the only one executed. If he fell asleep, the entire unit was also executed with him. So you know what? You can guarantee those guys kept each other awake, right? I bet they had a lot of Mountain Dew and highly caffeinated coffee. <laughs> Don't you dare false. I mean, this actually happened if you read about it in Acts 12, 4. Uh, remember when Peter was miraculously released from prison? Do you know what Herod did? He put all four squads of the four Roman soldiers to death. They were executed. Well, that's the guard. The Roman seal, how did they seal the tomb? Well, they would... Um, usually uh, stretch a cord, a, a long cord, big thick cord, across the tombstone. I did I tell you the tombstones uh, basically were from uh, one and a half to two tons. They were big, huge. Two tons is like 4,000 pounds. Big, massive things. And they, they ran in the track. And when you, you closed it, the track kind of went down. But to open it, you had to push it up, slightly up. All right, so they would, they would take a rope, a big, thick rope, and put it across the tomb. Well, there, I don't have to. There's a picture of it right there. <laughs> I forgot about the picture. And then they would seal each end of the rope with the, um, <clears throat> the Ro Roman imperial seal, which meant that tomb was not to be tampered with. Um, <clears throat> and uh, if you did, anybody tampering with it, what do you think happened to them? 
Again, they would be put to death. Now, ironically, the fear of the Roman council, the Sanhedrin council, was totally unfounded. You know, they were so afraid the disciples were going to come and steal the body, but that was completely unfounded. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yet, God providentially used it to help prove Jesus' resurrection. You see, although the disciples had heard Jesus predict his third day resurrection on at least seven recorded occasions, they probably heard it more, but we have seven times in the scripture that he said, yes, I will suffer and die and be buried, but on the third day I will rise again. They heard him say that over and over again. Where were they right now? Were they outside the tomb waiting for the third day resurrection? This was the third day. No, they were scattered throughout the city, some staying here, some staying there. They couldn't leave Jerusalem because it was a Sabbath. You were only allowed as a Jew to travel so far or you'd be arrested. So they couldn't travel on the Sabbath. There were two Sabbaths in a row, the high day Sabbath Friday and the Saturday Sabbath because I believe Jesus was crucified on Thursday. Anyway, you have to um, get my message on that. But two Sabbaths in a row, so they were stuck in Jerusalem, and they're in hiding. They're in various locations throughout the city for fear that the religious rulers were looking for them to do to them what they did to their master, to crucify them. They are not even thinking about his possible resurrection, much less planning to do something to make it look like he resurrected. That's the furthest thing from their minds. They're crushed to the depths of their, of their souls. Um, and not a single thought entered their minds about perpetrating a hoax by stealing his body. In fact, they were full of doubt about everything. Thinking perhaps, could we have been wrong about Jesus all this time? And so mixed with their tremendous sorrow was their weak faith, as well as their shame in having deserted him at his greatest hour of need. So to steal and to hide his body would have done absolutely nothing to lift their spirits. Nothing. To deceive others, to deceive others would not have removed their tears, would it? No. So the Jews, it's funny, the disciples don't remember his third day res resurrection promises, but the Jews do. You know, the Jews, when I say the Jews, I mean the religious rulers. They do remember what the, G what the disciples forgot, which was the sign of Jonah. Uh, did you all read that real quick? Got behind. Okay, here's the sign of Jonah. Matthew 12, you know, after Jesus performed so many miracles and signs and wonders, and, and then the Jews accused him of doing everything in the power of Beelzebub or the power of Satan, and then they dared ask him for another sign. What is he says? Only one more sign am I ever going to give you, and that's the sign of Jonah. You know, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. They didn't forget that. I don't think they forgot that. I know they didn't forget when he said, destroy this temple and on the third day I'll raise it up again. They didn't forget that because they mocked him about that when he was on the cross. So they remembered what the disciples forgot, so they took every precaution to make sure that that sign, that sign of Jonah, would not be fulfilled or that his men would not take his body to make it look like it was fulfilled. It was all so 
absolutely foolish. So foolish from God's perspective. You know, I can imagine him from heaven looking down, shaking his head. It would be like using, trying to use a tiny cork to prevent a massive volcanic eruption. So let's jump to Sunday morning. All right? Before the first group of women arrive at the tomb, there is another earthquake. This is the second now in three days. The first one, which occurred simultaneously with his last breath when he gave up his spirit, simultaneously with the torn veil, top to bottom, and the open grave. All those things happened at once the moment he died. You know, bing, 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 earthquake. That served, that earthquake served as heaven's sign of his Christ's completed atonement work and his great victory over sin. That was, that was God's amen to it is finished, right? That earthquake. Well, the Sunday morning earthquake was heaven's sign of Jesus' great victory over what? Death. Death. As he came bursting out of a hundred pounds of grave clothes and a sealed tomb in his glorified, resurrected, human body. He bodily rose. Not just his spirit. He rose bodily. Did he make himself visible when he did that to the Roman soldiers? Did they see him come bursting out of the tomb? No, they did not. He never made himself visible to unbelievers. But they did see something. They did see someone. <laughs> there was an angel whose countenance was like lightning, it says, and raiment white as snow, and he did make himself visible to the Roman soldiers. And when he did, <laughs> those rough, tough warriors, warriors, we're told, were so frightened. Matthew 28, 4 says, they did shake, and it's the same word as the earthquake. <laughs> they did shake and became as dead men. In other words, they either fainted or they became so paralyzed with fear that they went into a state of shock. They, they were completely traumatized by what they saw. I mean, they're out there, you know, just another, boy, this is a boring duty to stand guard in front of a tomb. How ridiculous, you know. We could be doing so many more exciting things and all of a sudden the whole ground, you know, earthquake, and then here comes this shining bright angel from heaven and rolls away the stone. They couldn't handle it. They passed out, apparently. <laughs> well, after removing the two-ton stone from the tomb entrance, which is absolutely no problem for a mighty angel, he then, and I love this, he just casually sat on top of the tombstone. Just sat there. That's why I call him the tombstone angel. Now, make sure you understand this. He did not remove the tombstone so that Jesus could get out because Jesus had already risen. He, remember when he walked in the upper room and didn't open the door? He did not need that stone rolled away to resurrect. He, the first thing that happened resurrection morning was Jesus rose from the dead. Then the angel came down and removed the tombstone. And why did he do that? Well, he did it not so that Jesus could get out, but that people could get in and see 
Not only the empty tomb, but the mysteriously empty grave clothes. Well, when the soldiers recovered enough to move, we are told they quickly scattered from the site. You better believe they did. And it only says some of them, some of them, not all of them, some of them went to the chief priests. They didn't go to Pilate. Why didn't they go to Pilate? I would have been burned to death alive. <laughs> uh, they, didn't go to, they went to the chief priests hoping that maybe the chief priests could do something with Pilate and save their lives. Um, and they go to the chief priests, which is so funny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they tell them everything that happened at the garden tomb. Now, these guys are Romans. Do they care about a Jewish Messiah? Do they care about a resurrection from the dead? Do they care about angels? They don't care about any of that. These are objective guys, tough, rough, and they're visibly shaken. There's no doubt about it. They are telling the truth, and they're just trembling in their boots, and they tell the chief priests everything that had happened at the garden tomb, which was now empty, but not because of Jesus' disciples. So another great irony in this whole narrative is that the very men who had been sent to prevent anything strange from happening at Jesus' tomb were the ones to give firsthand objective evidence of his resurrection to the Jewish religious leaders. Do you think our God has a sense of humor? Oh, he certainly does. That is just so funny. Um... <laughs> And uh, I, I can just picture Caiaphas and Annas and the other uh, Sadducees. Most of the chief priests were Sadducees. Why were they sad? Because they didn't believe in resurrection. <laughs> they were sad, you see. And what else did they not believe in? Angels. So here they're getting, they're getting this report about resurrection, empty grave clothes, and angels. They must have been livid. Absolutely livid. Uh, but there's no reason, you know, not to believe. I think they believe the report. I really do. Otherwise, you know, they're, they're told, they tell the Romans to lie. I'll talk about that next. But um, why wouldn't they have rounded up the disciples? They couldn't leave yet, you know. Well, some of them could. It was now Sunday. But why didn't they quickly round him up, you know, or any of his followers and beat them, beat them, torture them until some of them said, yes, yes. yes. You know, somebody would have caved and said, yes, we did steal the body. We know where it is. We'll show you. Why did they not do that? Because they believed the report. They believed it. But instead of falling on their knees and repenting of what they had done in killing the, the Messiah, I mean, these are Jews. They know their Old Testament. And they, they should, I think many of them did believe, but they're so proud that they would not bow before God in, uh, you know, in utter repentance. Um, and instead of going to the tomb themselves to investigate the matter, what do they do, these Jesus-hating hypocrites? They bribe the soldiers to lie, to tell a lie. They were to spread the rumor that... Uh, Jesus' disciples had stolen his body while they, the soldiers, were sleeping. And they said, we know that's worthy of the death penalty with Pilate, but we'll, don't worry, we'll protect you. We've got him wrapped around our pinky, so we'll protect you. And so what did the soldiers do? They took the money and they spread, spread the lie. It's called to this day the theft theory, and many, many Jews believe it to this day. Many people believe it, that the disciples stole the body. 
Um, but it is very, very unreasonable if you think about it. By the way, what happened to the other Roman soldiers? Only some of them went to the chief priests. I think they went AWOL. Don't you think they would have just escaped from <laughs> as fast as they could? <laughs> All right, but think about how unreasonable this is, this theft theory. First of all, would you ever call somebody on a witness stand to find out what was happening when that witness said he slept through the whole thing? <laughs> if the soldiers were sleeping, which is inconceivable in light of the death penalty for them if they did so, but if they were all sleeping, all 16 of them, they wouldn't know what happened. <laughs> Secondly, the scraping noise to roll that huge stone, and you know it, it wasn't quiet to do that, to roll it up the hill. The time that it would take to strip off all the grave clothes, and why would they do that? To begin with, why would the disciples dishonor Jesus by, you know, carrying off a naked body, all sticky with aloes and the myrrh and everything? Well, you know, the time, it would take a long time to unwrap the body, and um, and then and then rewrap all the grave clothes so that they look like a body was still in them, and then sneak off carrying a naked body. Uh, why would they do that? But if all that, let's say it happened. Uh, do you not think any of it would have awakened at least one of those Roman soldiers? Of course it would have. And third of all, the disciples would not have persisted in preaching Christ resurrected the rest of their lives, especially when they would have known it was a lie, a lie that started to cost them persecution, jail time, and eventually even their own deaths. But they all went to their deaths preaching the resurrection, didn't they? Why? Because something amazing happened that morning. The only one who didn't was John, but he was persecuted. Big time. Okay, again, we're going to jump scenes now from the Roman soldiers to a group of faithful female disciples. John 20, verse 1. Here's the first time I've got you in the scripture there. John 20, verse 1 tells us that early Sunday morning, while it was yet dark, and the time of the sky is given in all four Gospels, and it's very interesting. But while it was yet very dark... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the uh, sister-in-law of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome. Now, who is Salome? It's not Salami, it's Salome. Who is Salome? She is Mary, the mother of Jesus' real sister. So uh, she is the mother of James the Greater and John, the sons of thunder. <clears throat> Her husband was Zebedee. You get it? So Mary Magdalene... And Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the wife of Cleopas, the brother of Joseph, and Salome, the sister of Mary, all head out to the tomb. Now, another group of Galilean women, which included Joanna and perhaps Susanna, there are other women's names given in the scripture, in Luke 24, also set out for the tomb. Now remember, all these people are not in the same place. Later they meet in the upper room, but now they're just scattered throughout the city. So one group of women is coming from one place, and another group of women is coming from another place. So perhaps the second group left a little bit later, or perhaps they had to travel a further distance. I don't know, but whatever is the case, they arrived after the first group of women had been there. 
you have all the, you know, the, the um, handout I gave you gives you the whole chronology of everything or a possible chronology. Well, from Mark, the Gospel of Mark, we learn of the concern. Now, the women, the first group of women, probably both groups of women, as they're traveling with their little jars of spices, you know, to the tomb, they know where they're going, they know which tomb it is. As they're on their way to that garden tomb, what is their biggest concern? What are they thinking about? We know because Mark told us. Their big concern is how in the world are we going to remove a two-ton stone? Now, they obviously knew nothing about a Roman guard or a Roman seal, or they would have had a lot bigger concerns, wouldn't they? They did not know about that. Their big thing is how we're going to remove the stone. But also unknown to them is uh, the fact that Almighty God had already taken care of the obstacles. The one they knew about, which was the great stone, and he even took care of the obstacles they didn't know about, the Roman seal and the Roman guard. Uh, isn't that the way he is? You know, we, we concern ourselves about a lot of things, and then he's already taken care of that ahead of time for us. Well, as they're traveling, concerned about you know, crying and weeping. It's a funeral procession, and they're just bit, just in great despair. Suddenly, they would have felt the earthquake and probably wondered about having two quakes in just three days. But there is one thing that is abundantly evident about these women carrying their jars of burial spices and ointments. They were not at all anticipating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples weren't, and neither were the female. The male disciples, nor the female. Not nobody, except the Jews. <laughs> so when the first group of women arrive at the tomb, they immediately would have noticed that something was amiss. Why? Well, the tomb stone was rolled away already for them. And there would be a rope hanging there, you know, and a Roman seal, and the, probably the remains of a fire. I don't know, maybe the soldiers hightailed it out of there so fast they didn't even put the fire out. Maybe the fire was still going. They probably saw, well, they would see the, uh, the broken seal. They would see footprints. Perhaps they knew something was up. Um, and many Bible expositors, now go to Mary Magdalene, many believe that Mary Magdalene, out of whom... Jesus had exercised seven demons. Poor woman. You know, a lot of people make her out to be a prostitute. It never says that in the scripture. She, and they mix her up with another Mary who washed his feet, who was a prostitute with her tears, and, and Simon the Pharisee. That's a, different, that's a different person. We don't even know that woman's name. She wasn't the lover of Jesus either all this Hollywood stuff. Mary Magdalene was a woman who totally was devoted to Jesus because he had, he had freed her from demonic possession. Well, they believe she was probably younger than the other women. Now, the other women, Salome and that other Mary, had grown sons, so they were obviously older. Mary was probably younger, so she ran ahead of them in her hurry to get to Jesus. 
and to get to the tomb. You know, she just was so in love with Jesus, even if it was his dead body, she just wanted to get to him. And when she saw the opened entrance to the tomb, guess what she did? She jumped to the wrong conclusion. I had a physical last week, and, and the nurse asked me, she said, do you get a lot of exercise? I said, yes, jumping to wrong conclusions. <laughs> Mary, Mary jumped to the wrong conclusion and thought her Lord's body had been taking, taken. You know what? She, she neglected to do some important things. She neglected to linger and look around. She didn't even look in the tomb. She just saw the, the stone rolled away and immediately took off. She and Peter would have made a good pair, impetuous, you know. She just took off to run, and she knew where Peter and John were staying, wherever that was. And remember, John would have been with Mary. Because the Lord entrusted Mary, his mother, to John's care. So those three we know would have been together, Peter, John, and Mary. But she runs to give Peter and John a very false message. Very false message. The words she blurted out to those two men revealed her impetuously made wrong conclusion. They revealed also that she had no thought whatsoever that Christ had resurrected from the dead. You see, Mary Magdalene missed the supernatural. The other women are going to talk to angels. The angels were probably there, but she, you know, she's so quick, she didn't see him. She didn't talk to them. She just took off running. So she missed the supernatural. She missed the angels. She missed the empty grave clothes because she was too focused on her despair to take the time to investigate the evidence of the resurrection. You know, there's many people today in this world who will not take the time to investigate the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the most important thing that has ever happened. Without it, we have no hope. I mean, it's the conclusion of the gospel. You have to have, the, just like God is a trinity, the gospel is a trinity. The death, the burial, but what if it stopped there? <laughs> We'd still be dead in our sins. He had to rise the third day, death, burial, resurrection. She didn't take the time to investigate. She jumped to the wrong conclusion because she didn't remember, and this is important too, she did not remember Jesus' promise to rise the third day. None of them did. And so she brought to men who already had extremely heavy hearts. These guys are just as low as you could get. She brought to men who very, very much needed the glorious, victorious message of the resurrection of the Savior of mankind. She brought to them a message that only further just deepened their despair. What did she say to them? She said, they have taken the Lord they have taken the Lord. Now think about that. That is not only a message of disbelief. It is an oxymoron. I love that word. <laughs> Why is it an oxymoron? Well, because it contains a mixture of two things that cannot go together. I could say like an honest politician, but I won't say that. They, she said, they have taken away the Lord. Okay, you get that? They have taken away the Lord. That is a weird combination of spiritual faith and spiritual blindness. If Jesus is Lord, 
No one could do anything that he would not permit, like take his body or break his legs or put him in the valley of corpses, right? If he's truly Lord, no one could, even in his death, no one could do anything to him if he's Lord. If he's truly Lord, he's in control. If he's truly Lord, why did not Mary trust his oft-repeated promise to rise on, from the dead on the third day? But don't we do exactly the same thing? Mm-hmm, we do. We call him Lord, but do not the things he commands. We call him Lord, but how often do we doubt his words and waver at his promises? We call him Lord, but do we bow to other masters? We call him Lord, but do we run to others for help and advice and counsel instead of to him? And I could go on and on and on. We're all guilty. Now, who do you think she meant when she said they? She used the pronoun they. They have taken the Lord. Well, she's likely referring to the chief priests, uh, who she would suspect were the, the thief cul culprits. Isn't it funny? They think the disciples are going to steal the body, and she's thinking that they had stolen the body. Why would they want the body? Well, because they could dump him in that awful valley of corpses to disgrace him even further. Or maybe they took him and hid him so his followers could not continue to show him respect or come to his tomb and mourn for him. Or maybe they had his body cremated. Or, you know, I don't know what's going through her mind, but she's saying they have taken the Lord. Well, while Mary Magdalene is off reporting her false message... To Peter and John, the other women, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and Salome, get to the tomb, and the angel, whose appearance had traumatized those rough, tough Roman soldiers, spoke to them from his... Remember where he's sitting? The tombstone angel? He's sitting up on top of the tomb. He spoke, speaks to them from his perch. And uh, when, the angel, when the women see him, just like the soldiers, it says that they were frightened. I think it uses the word affrighted. I love that word. They were affrighted. Have you ever been affrighted? <laughs> That's being King James scared. Uh, and so uh, the, they're, they're frightened, but not as badly. They don't fall down and faint. Yay, women. Um, and the angel quickly gives them calming words. He says, this is in Matthew 28, 5. <laughs> he says, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. You see, those who seek Jesus, even though they're seeking him dead, they're seeking him, right? Have no reason to be afraid. The women sought Jesus. Why? Because they wanted to continue to minister to him in death, even as they had in life. But the angel wasn't finished with his God-sent message. Remember our study on angelology? What are angels? Messengers. God's messenger. So he's just speaking to them what God told him to speak. He then gave to these women the very first proclamation of Christ's resurrection to women. The first proclamation of Christ's birth was to men, right? So it's only fit to shepherds, Bethlehem shepherds. So it's only fair that the first proclamation of his resurrection was to women. The angel said to Jesus' faithful female disciples, he is not here. For he is risen, and then what? As he said. I don't have that on there. <laughs> there it is, the next one. As he said. Those words are important. What 
glorious words to hear outside of a tomb. You know, tombstone, my tombstone, wanted to say, well, I wanted to say a lot of things. They're going to have to get a giant tombstone for all the things I've said I wanted to be on. <laughs> but don't worry, I'm not here. <laughs> I'm not here. What fantastic words to hear outside of any deceased loved one's grave, right? She's not here. But these are especially beautiful words to hear about the one in whom you have placed your faith as Savior and Lord. So aren't you glad that the angel didn't just say the first part of that message? If he had merely said he is not here, then his words would have brought no comfort whatsoever to the souls of the grieving women or to us. You see, this is what Mary Magdalene thought. Uh, she thought, you know, he wasn't there. His, his bot and his missing body certainly didn't bring her any joy or comfort, did it? But the angel didn't end his message with, he is not here. Because he went on to say, for he is risen as he said. The greatest news of all time and eternity caught these women by total surprise. It, their minds must have been spinning and their hearts pumping like crazy. In the, in the few seconds that it took, for that message to register the overwhelming despair of the past three days and three nights was instantly, instantly exchanged for ecstatic joy that no one could ever put out again. Do you understand the importance of that morning? The most important morning in history when Jesus rose from the dead is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means what? If I live ye shall live also. This world is not all there is. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to come out of that tomb one day. I don't care how somebody was, if they were blown up to pieces, they're in the bottom of the ocean, they're going to rise bodily to be with him forever. Fantastic. And I can just picture those jars of spices that they're holding, their ointments, the symbols of death and sadness probably just slipped out of their hands and crashed to the ground, emitting their wonderful fragrance. You know, in the tomb, there was no stench. Remember Lazarus? Oh, Lord, don't do that. He stinketh for four days. Well, this is after three days. There was, you know what emitted from that tomb? Aloes and myrrh, and they said it smelled like sandalwood. And it never would have smelled of decay because... God would not allow his Holy One to see decay. He was sinless. You don't, you don't see corruption if you're sinless. So, um, and then we have to take note of those three little end words where the angel added, as he said. He was saying to these women, why are you seeking the crucified Jesus? Didn't he tell you? Over and over and over again, didn't he tell you he would rise on the third day? How could you forget such a great promise? You know, and it's easy for us to think, you know, hindsight. Oh, how could they forget that? How could they forget that? But um, I think they were thinking, like, remember Martha and Mary when he said, you know, I'm the resurrection alive, and believe me, he's going to rise. From and she, Martha said, yes, Lord, I know. I know he's going to rise from the dead. In the last day, because they all thought it was long term. You know, one day there would be this great resurrection way off in history future. 
So that's probably when they heard the third day, okay, he's probably speaking symbolically, and they just didn't get it. Um, but do you know that when we, you and I, when we forget or when we put the Lord's promises in some kind of a symbolic or allegorical setting, we will waste a whole lot of time doing needless things, such as preparing spices and ointments that are totally unnecessary. If we forget his promises or put them in a spiritual context, which some people do with the whole book of Revelation, we are going to spend a whole lot of time needlessly worrying. Right? How are we going to move that big stone in our way? We'll also experience a lot of needless sorrow. So, what's the lesson? Give attention to the promises of Scripture because His Word does not fail. It will not return unto Him void. It was the third day, so, duh, He was not there. Because, as he said <laughs> at least seven times, he arose triumphant over death. You know, we need to cling to the promises of God. And one that I, I love so much is John 14, verses 1 to 3, where Jesus said to his disciples the night before he was arrested, or the night he was arrested, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me, because guess what? I am God's son. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. And here, I love this. If it were not so, I would not have told you. You get that? I wouldn't tell you a lie. I'm God. I don't lie. Do you understand? This is true. Just like when he said he'd rise the third day. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Guess what? It's really dark in the world right now. And I think he's on the precipice of heaven, ready to come and get his bride, his church. He says, I will. Not may, maybe I will. I don't know. It depends on how you guys behave. He says, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That is a promise you can cling to for yourself and for all your loved ones who have gone on in the Lord. You're going to see them again. Well, the, in, the angel then gave the women an invitation into the tomb to witness the evidence of the resurrection. He said, come see, come see the place where the Lord lay. Lay, past tense, where he did lay. <laughs> they were to analyze what they saw in the tomb and um, analyze that with what they had just heard from the Lord's own mouth through the angel. The angel knew that if they put together the two, what they heard and what they saw, that they would what? They would believe in the bodily resurrection. And then he gave them instructions to quickly tell the disciples, go quickly, tell them 
that Jesus has risen from the dead. It was a day of good tidings. It was the day of joy the Lord had promised when he said to his men, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye shall weep and lament, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned to what? You know, one day, all of our sorrow is going to be turned to joy. Every tear is going to be wiped away forever. Only tears of joy in heaven. Now, it's interesting that the first commissioned proclaimers of the resurrection message, the completed gospel, death, burial, and resurrection, were women. Of course, we're all women, so we love that. Well, sorry, guys. There's a few guys in here. But it was women. Why do you think this is? Why weren't the first proclaimers of the completed gospel the apostles? Why weren't they men? Well, perhaps the reason is because long ago in another garden, death entered the world when a woman conversed with an angel, <laughs> a fallen angel. And unlike the holy angel, the tombstone angel, Lucifer did not remind Eve of God's word. He didn't say, as he said, did he? Rather, he caused her to question God's word. Yay, hath God said. You know, you can't trust that God. <laughs> so the evil's message was not come and see. It was doubt and disobey. And that's what's been happening in the world ever since. You know, people either doubt and disobey or they come and see and they know the truth. It was typical of God's grace for women, therefore, to be given the opportunity to counteract Eve's sad part in the fall by giving them the privilege to be the first proclaimers of the new life and victory over sin and death um, to the sons of Adam. I think that's why he did it. Well, before the women obeyed the tombstone angel, by quickly responding to the good, the, reporting the good news to the disciples, um, they did accept his invitation to go into the tomb to see where Jesus had laid. And once inside, it tells us there, here's that word again, they were affrighted. <laughs> because when they went in the tomb, they saw a young man, this is Mark 16, 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side of the shelf in there where, they, where Jesus' body had been and the empty grave clothes are. Well, he's on the right side, and it tells us elsewhere that he's in a long white garment. And, so, and he gives almost an identical message as the angel outside on the tombstone. So what we do is conclude that this is not a young man. Who is it? It's another angel, and I call him the tomb shelf angel. We have the tombstone angel and the tomb shelf angel. And uh, the women are very frightened, so he also quickly comforts them. He says, be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. And then he pointed to the shelf upon which he was sitting and said, behold the place where they laid him. Mark 16, 6. And what did the women see on that shelf inside the tomb? They saw the empty grave clothes, nobody home, nobody inside. 
they did not need to wrap, further wrap, a dead Jesus because they would forevermore worship a living Jesus, a living Savior. The crucified Jesus was not there. He had risen, just as he said. And then the, Lord, the tomb shelf angel told the women the same message, go quickly, tell the disciples the good news, and they threw in Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter. You know when Peter heard that? You know what? He had denied the Lord three times. He was probably thinking, I am no longer going to be considered an apostle. He was really, really, really down on himself. He genuinely repented, you know. But when he heard the women say, and he specifically said, and Peter. You know, Peter was the first apostle to whom he appeared in his resurrected. That must have just meant so much to Peter. Well, shortly after the first group of women leave, the second group of women arrive at the tomb. They find the tombstone rolled away, and they go inside, all right? Now, they didn't see the tomb stone angel. They just see the stone rolled away, and they immediately go inside. And when they go inside, they're perplexed by what they see inside because suddenly there are two men in shining white garments standing in front of them. Now, who do you think those two guys are? the tombstone and the tomb shelf angels. Now, they you know, apparently they both went inside. And this causes them to be so afraid that we are told they fell down on the ground. They didn't faint, <clears throat> but they fell down on the ground before these heavenly creatures. <clears throat> and then uh, the, to the women, the, the angels ask them a question. Why seek ye the living among the dead? That's Luke 24, 5. And the question was really an announcement that the dead one they were seeking was what? Living. He was alive. You don't look for living people in a tomb. I don't really want to be buried in a cemetery with a bunch of dead people, do you? <laughs> and then he said, he's not here, but is risen. And then he said, they said this, remember, here's the word, remember, this is angels talking to the women, remember, how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. You remember that, ladies? And guess what? Oh, finally, somebody besides the Jews remembers. I mean, you know, the religious leaders. Now that they're reminded, they did remember the Lord's uh, third day resurrection prophecy and suddenly you know it's like light bulbs suddenly everything clicked everything came together their sorrow was turned to joy <coughs> and and the, the scripture tells us it was no longer dark outside the sun had risen in full blazing glory because it was a brand new day they had wrongly sought thought excuse me that that the sun s-o-n was gone from them forever when he was shining brighter than ever before. Well, the second group of women, just like the first, they left, they go, there's a lot of running, oh, back and forth to the tomb all morning long. They left to give the apostles scattered here and there the completed gospel message as they were commanded to do. You see, now that they knew the truth, they were responsible to share it. That, share it. That's a, a biblical principle. Responsibility comes after revelation. Once you know the truth, once you have the truth revealed, you're responsible to share it with others, aren't you? 
Well, shortly thereafter, we have more people coming to the tomb. Peter and John arrive at the tomb. Um, there's no mention of angels appearing to them. There were no angels. They, Peter and John didn't see any angels. And suddenly the angels, you know, it's funny. The angels only appeared to the women, not to the men. The Roman soldiers didn't see the angels. Peter and John didn't see the angels. There were no angels inside or outside. And they were probably there, but they didn't make themselves visible. And the two men didn't stay very long at the tomb. Now, it's brave for them to go to the tomb because, you know, as for all they know, the Jews are after them to get them, and to crucify them like they did with Jesus. So out, to run out in the open, but they didn't stay there very long. And, you know, John was younger. He was probably a late teenager or early 20s. He ran ahead of Peter, and he gets to the tomb first, but he stops respectfully and lets Peter go. Now, what, when Peter gets to the tomb, what does he do? He's just typical Peter. He just barges right in. He just goes right into the tomb, and uh, he looks around, and it tells us that he's perplexed. He's perplexed, but he wonders at what he saw. But what John saw, John gives us eyewitness testimony, that what he saw caused him to believe. Believe in what? The bodily resurrection of Christ. What did they see? What did both men see inside the tomb? They saw the linen wrappings with the hundred pounds of spices lying empty like a cocoon shell. Not imploded, you know, just like if you did ever do paper mache, you blow up a balloon and you wrap it in paper mache and then mache, paper, what is it called? <laughs> you wrap it up and then you pop the balloon and um, you still have the shape of the balloon, right? Well, that's how this was. Picture that. Um, they saw that. The, the grave clothes were still intact as, as though, you know, not having been unwrapped. And they're intact as if a body was still inside of them, but there is no body inside of them. And then the second thing they saw was the, 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 the linen napkin that was used to wrap around the, the head, which they would twirl around the head and then interlace its ends. They saw that it was wrapped together in a place by itself. Here's the, here's the grave clothes, and then the head turban is in a different place. So hands took that off and put it down. Hands that had been wrapped and at the side, you know. It says wrapped together, and literally in the Greek it means rolled up, rolled up, which suggests that the napkin was lying in its condition as it had been twirled around the Lord's head. It was by itself, okay? They see this. Everything is neat and tidy and precise. There's just no body there. <laughs> now the only way the linen grave wrappings could be left in that condition was if Jesus passed right through them as he resurrected from the dead in a glorified body. If friends had taken the body, they would have taken the wrappings, the clothes, with the body so as not to dishonor the corpse. I mean, why would they want to take away a naked Jesus covered with bruises and you know, if enemies, if foes took the body, they would not have gone to all the trouble to unwrap it. However, if friends or foes had decided, for some crazy reason, to first unwrap the body, there was no, there is no way, no way they could leave the wrappings intact. Those wrappings would have been torn and scattered, and certainly not in their original convolutions as when a body was beneath them. 
Likewise, the headpiece would not have been in its original wrapped up condition. The language of the scripture is that the grave clothes were laying in a very neat and orderly fashion. No grave robber would have unwrapped the body and then rewind the grave clothes in such a way that they looked exactly as they had when the body was within them. You see, the gummy, the gummy myrrh mixture inside the folds of the linen strips would make it impossible to unwrap the corpse without tearing and damaging those wrappings. I mean, they're all sticky, okay? So you can't just unwrap like this. They're all sticking together. So you'd have to tear them apart. And it would leave a whole lot of evidence of vandalism behind. Plus, when you got close to the skin, the gummy mixture would pull some of the skin off of the corpse. <laughs> so everything pointed to the fact that Christ had just risen right out of his grave of clothing and right past the tombstone. And then there's this to consider. No one, after having snuck past a Roman guard and pushed away a heavy stone, breaking the Roman seal, which was punishable by death, would have taken the time to unwrap the body and then leave the grave wrappings back together. And I mean, why would you do that? Are you thinking? I mean, the whole thing is just so ludicrous. So what John saw, young John, when he looked into the tomb, he didn't go in, by the way. He stood at the, you know, he had to bend over to get in. They were lower. So he bent over and he was looking in. Uh, what he saw was not a body robbery, but a bodily resurrection. And what caused him to believe? Empirical evidence caused him to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what we have is a testimony from a man not anticipating a resurrection at all. He runs frantically to the tomb, thinking the body of Jesus has been stolen. But when he looks in the tomb, he sees something utterly unexpected. And John himself, who was there because it was him, and he's giving us his eyewitness report, tells us that it was at that moment, without knowing anything about the Old Testament scriptures. He says that in John 20, verse 9. He said, I believe based on what I saw, not because I understood that the Old Testament had said that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Where did it say that? Well, it said that like Isaac offered on Mount Moriah by Abraham. It said it through the story of Jonah. It said it in Psalm 16 that God would not allow the Holy One to see corruption. It says it in Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2. But he, John, did not believe in the resurrection because of Scripture. He believed in it because of the empty grave clothes. And we're going to stop there so we can eat some more and then come back for our second session. So let me just close in a quick word of prayer. Father, as I reflected on the women involved in the events of resurrection morning, I couldn't help but think that they, what they would have missed if they had stayed home that morning to weep and to mourn and maybe even complain about the sad outcome of things that they had poured their years of their lives believing were going to be so different. So what a lesson you give us by their example, a lesson that tells us not to allow doubts or grief or fear or depression or our unbound emotions to destroy our vision or bind our hands and feet in serving you. We all, we all as women, we have the tendency, you know, to hide 
ourselves when we're in the valleys of life rather than assemble with your people and hear your word and involve ourselves in your work. So I wonder how many blessings we likely miss when we tend our wounds at home rather than stepping out, even in the midst of darkness. I don't know. We may never know. But thank you. Thank you for that lesson. And thank you for another beautiful spiritual lesson that you prevent by way of the sky reports presented in all four Gospels. John says the women left the tomb when it was yet dark, very dark, which was true for the sky and for their hearts. Matthew, however, tells us that as they continued their journey, the darkness began to diminish and dawn was rapidly approaching. approaching. And then Mark and Luke complete the picture by telling us that when the women arrived at the tomb, it was sunrise, which was certainly true spiritually speaking, when the women heard the angel's announcement of Christ's resurrection. Your word is just so rich and deep with lessons and nuggets of truth when we are willing to look for them because salvation is a walk out of darkness and into the glorious light of a new day, a resurrected day. And I pray that every woman, every young person here this morning has made that journey from the darkness of this evil, depressing world to the bright joy that is only found in the Son, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And Father, bless the food to the nourishment of our bodies, for we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.